Um, uh, the second uh, semester series, the Fordham uh, lecture on the Semitism, uh, joining with Isgab. Um, uh, Professor Joel Weinberg from the law school over there with a beautiful tie, and I are hosting uh, Isgab. Um, uh, this evening, uh, the speaker is um, Edwin Black, and um, the director of uh, Isgab, uh, Dr. Small, will, uh, will uh, by the way, he's got a beautiful scarf, not Joel's. <laughs> It's kind of more Canadian style. Um, uh, uh, Charles will be uh, introducing. Come, come, guys, come, come. We've been waiting for you. I mean, you're running late. Uh, 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 six o'clock. All right, uh, Charles, are you uh, shooting? Yeah. So, Ruan Benatar and Joel, thank you. They're the hosts at Fordham of the Gap Seminar Series. Donald Baldock just walking in. He's the co-chair of the uh, ISGAP Board of Trustees. Really nice to see you. So welcome everybody. We're on a tight schedule, so I'm going to be brief. We have two speakers tonight. Edwin Black was the main speaker. I'm going to introduce him in a second. And Professor Chaim Shaket, who is a professor from the University of Miami. He's going to introduce a very important film after Edwin is finished. So, Professor Shaket is a uh, professor of international studies at the University of Miami, where he is the incumbent of the, the Dr. Lee Pierce Chair in Middle East Studies, he's Professor of Middle East Studies, and he's the founding director of the Sue and Leonard Miller Center for Contemporary Judaic Studies, and he's also the director of the George Fendelkrauss Program in Judaic Studies, and he's one of the founders of the IBC in Herzliya. Um, and he's also doing important work on the issues of Holocaust studies. So welcome. Here, to, 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 Edwin Black is an award-winning, New York Times best-selling, international investigative author of 80 award-winning editions of, of his books. He's been published in 14 languages in more than 60 countries. He's written in newspapers, magazines, uh, leading publications in the United States, Europe, and Israel. With more than a million books in print, which is amazing, his work focuses on issues of genocide, hate, corporate criminality and corruption, government misconduct, academic fraud, uh, issues of oil and uh, the politics of oil and alternative energy and, and historical investigation. Edwin's work has been, uh, he's been interviewed on uh, the Oprah Winfrey Show, the Today Show, CNN with Wolf Blitzer, NBC News, Dateline, the list goes on and on. Many of his books have been optioned by Hollywood for films with two in active production. Edwin's speaking tours includes hundreds of events in dozens of cities around the year, occurring in prestigious venues from the Library of Congress in Washington and the Seaman Amusement Health Center in Los Angeles. Um, he's also spoken, uh, spoken at the London uh, British War Museum, the Amsterdam Institute uh, for War Documentation, uh, and the list goes on. He's, um, he's also been a leading contributor to the Cutting Edge News, which receives more than one and a half million visits each month. He's written for the Huffington Post and the Times of Israel. And his important lecture tonight is dealing with the Parhut, 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 which Edwin will 
masterfully explain the implications and the relevance from the history to the contemporary context. So Edward, it's an honor that you're here. Thank you. Thank you. Hello, everybody. Hello. Hello. Hi. Hi. Thanks for coming out in the cold. You never know. Is it freezing? Is it boiling here? You know, the yeah. weather's going up and down. <clears throat> so first of all, um, uh, I have some uh, important hellos and thank yous. Uh, I do, of course, thank uh, Charles Small and ISGAP for conducting these important seminars around the United States and for inviting me to present to you today. Um, as soon as I get out of here, I'm flying down to Florida and doing a, a series of events uh, at several universities. I would like to thank my friend and uh, colleague, uh, Chaim Sheket, professor from Miami, who has flown here to contribute a very important uh, film, short film uh, documentary afterwards, giving you the actual victims speaking in their own words, so you can, it's one thing for the historian to come along, and when, when I'm done, as sad as my story will be, you will listen to the others. Um, I'd like to recognize Carol Basri. Uh, she's been working with the Sephardic uh, community here for many, many years, and uh, is an advocate for uh, history, and um, who else is here that I haven't said hello to? Like, now, so let me see. If there's any members of the American Association of Jewish Lawyers and uh, Jurists here, please raise, raise your hand. All right, so a few, okay. Um, the Lewins could not be here, uh, and I'm greeting you. Thank you very much for coming. Uh, anyone here from Long Island? <laughs> All right, um, I will be doing IBM and the Holocaust for his synagogue for 900 people. In April, he's just here to regret that I'm not doing this one instead of, I, of, of, I, of IPM. Is there anyone here who um, uh, is from, has a question about another book like War Against the Week? Raise your hand. You back there, do you have a question? You, you will, okay. We will take one question. And finally, this firehood is about a Baghdadi pogrom, a pogrom in Baghdad. Is there anyone in the room who has a relative who lived through this pogrom? You, 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 you. Who was it that lived through it on your side? My grandmother and all your siblings. Your grandmother and all your siblings and you? Oh, hi, shalom, shalom, Leo. Yeah? Yeah, my wife. Your, your wife, okay, and who else, and you? My grandma Your grandma, yeah? Several, okay. So, now, there's something inside of every one of you that brought you to come tonight, to find, and that is that you have a burning desire to know what happened. You may also have a desire to know why this has been put onto the margins of Holocaust <coughs> discussion and why we haven't heard of this before, and why we have to gather here uh, under the um, um, uh, baton of this gentleman instead of ha having this story blared out. And the reason is um, that certain Holocaust museums, whose name I will not identify, um, no matter how large they are, um, believe 
that the Holocaust, by definition, is the attempt to destroy European Jewry. So they're saying that Hitler's war against the Jews had a little red line here, and it didn't include Tunisia, and it didn't include Morocco, and it didn't include Syria, and it didn't include uh, Iraq and Iran, and all these other places. But we, knew, but we know that Hitler wanted to kill all of, all of the Jews. So I came along, and I, uh, um, I'm, of course, not Sephardic. My parents are survivors from Poland. But this is why I have done my work, and this is what, what has, been brought, has brought us together. Now, can everybody hear me? Okay. Um, if you can't hear, raise your hand. There's no sound system here for me, but I will project. If you can't hear, raise your hand. Unfortunately, I can't see too good, so I probably won't be able to notice. Okay. Now, everybody knows that the work that I do is always um, uh, of a certain uh, t type. I did uh, how IBM organized the Holocaust, how Rockefeller Foundation uh, funded Mendel's program, um, how Ford inspired uh, uh, Hitler, how um, uh, GM uh, um, motorized the Third Reich and enabled the um, Blitzkrieg. But this, I think you're going to find, and I have found, and my research has found, to be the single most difficult of my topics. I want to remind everybody that we are speaking of 20th century history. So, it's going to be a difficult, difficult discussion, but I don't want anyone to get out of the historical mode and use anything that I say or that you learn tonight vis-a-vis uh, -vis their neighbors today. You understand what I'm saying? Capiche? So, um, so now I'm going to read you, which I don't normally read from a book, I'm going to read you the opening lines from my introduction. We have a few books there for sale. If we run out, uh, we'll take or orders. This book is a nightmare. I regret anyone must read it. I regret it was necessary to write. And I regret that I was the one who had to write it. So, what was the Farhood? The Farhood was a protracted overnight pogrom, Arab Nazi pogrom, not Arab fascist pogrom. Arab Nazi program on June 1st and June 2nd of 1941 designed to wipe out and exterminate all the Jews of Iraq. The purpose of my book and my research was not just to document the bloodshed, because others have documented the bloodshed in many cases. I always want to find out why it happened. How could it be 
that a community of people that dwelt in Iraq or Mesopotamia, the land between the two rivers, for 2,700 years, a thousand years before Muhammad. How was it that this people became so reviled and so distasteful as neighbors that they were candidates for extermination and complete seizure of their property. And how is it possible that Semites, Arabs, came in league hand in hand with the Nazis who were completely anti-Semitic and considered the Jews and the Arabs to be the lowest eugenic evolutionary rung. What was the binding ingredient that brought the Arabs to the Nazis against the Jews? And that ingredient was oil. Hitler wanted it, the Arabs had it. So, let's go back and begin at kind of the beginning and we will find out what exactly caused this issue with the Semites. Now does everybody in the room know what a Semite is? Anybody here know what a Semite is? Alright, a Semite is the descendant. Noah had three sons. One of them was Shem. The descendants of Shem are Shemites, also known as Semites. And one of those was Abraham. And Abraham was the father of many nations. And among his nations were the Arabs and the Jews and, of course, many other groups. And um, um, uh, that actually is part of the problem between the Arabs and the Jews, this whole idea of whose son is more precious, whether it's Jesus or or. or or Ishmael, or, um, or Israel. <clears throat> so, if we really want to take this back, we should take it back to approximately 627, to the Medina extermination. Now, the Medina extermination is not one that they will teach you about, but uh, everyone here has heard of Mecca and Medina. But what you don't know is that Medina was originally a uh, th thriving city with a thriving Jewish population. The word Medina comes from the Hebrew Medinat, which is variously translated to mean the city or the district or, 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 or the state, uh, depending upon the context. In uh, 627, Muhammad uh, took his uh, new religion, Islam and uh, came into Medina after Mecca and wanted the Jewish community and the Christian community to um, abandon their religion and join his. Well, the Christians would not do this. They had spent more than half a millennium fighting for their religious freedom. And the Jews, of course, would not do this. They had been uh, uh, worshipping uh, 
their, um, uh, their books and their God and their religion for millennia. Okay? For millennia. So, the Jews of Medina would not cooperate. And Muhammad had a, the approximate uh, 600 of them, 608, 620, lined up in the square and had all their heads chopped off and took off their women, uh, took off with their women, and then continued the drive north. Um, and uh, the armies of Muhammad and what historians call the Islamic conquest then took over the north of, uh, of the Arabian Peninsula. Actually, what's an Arab? An Arab is a descendant of the, uh, of, 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 of the Arabian Peninsula. Um, and uh, then, of course, into North Africa and uh, much of the Near East and Middle East are creating um, uh, an Islamic-controlled region, empire, Islamic empire, in which uh, Jews and Christians were not allowed to observe their um, religion um, as equal members of society. They were made, turned into second and third class citizens. The word for this is dimmi. Does everybody here know the word dimmi? Who, who does not know dimmi? Okay. Dimmi is also known as the people of the book. Uh, or other second-class citizens were not allowed to build new houses of worship. Were sometimes had to a Jew sometimes had to wear a Jewish star, uh, a funny hat, special clothing. They might have to ride a, a donkey when the Arab would ride a horse, and mainly they had to pay a special tax once a year, and they had to pay it in a act of uh, submission where they would kind of bow a little bit and get their head slapped a little bit. That was part of the tax. You paid and you got your head clapped. Um, now, part of the reason for this is that uh, Muhammad really believed that the Jews had fabricated, and the Christians, had fabricated and corrupted God's word. Okay? For instance, they believed that the guy up uh, um, uh, on the mountain whose father almost sacrificed him, that was not uh, Isaac, that was Ishmael. And they uh, also believed that Jesus Christ was never crucified. Uh, I have with me here um, five, trans five authentic translations of... Verse 4, 157 of the Quran, uh, the uh, chapter 4 subnamed the women, where I have the Sahih International, the, the Piktal, the Yusuf Ali, the Shakir, and the, the Muhammad Sarwar, and the Mosin Khan translations. And they all say about the same that um, they slew him not nor crucified him, with in reference to Jesus. Uh, there was an imposter. So, Muhammad originally prayed to Jerusalem 
And at the time that he had his extreme parting of the ways with the Jews, turned his backside to Jerusalem when he prayed, and prayed to Mecca. There are many, many similarities in uh, uh, Islamic thought and uh, uh, Hebraic thought. Um, for instance, you've heard of the word uh, Hajj. Hajj is a, pil is, a, is a pilgrimage, and it's named for the uh, Jewish holidays, which are Chag. Because in uh, uh, Arabic, uh, the G and the J are interchangeable. So you have Gabriel and you have Jabril. So around 600, some say 620, comes the Pact of Umar. And this is the time, really, that I should have said it is the codification of the notion of Jews and Christians as dimmies, meaning second-class citizens who don't have the same rights, who are considered to be vile, who sometimes must wear stars and funny outfits and things of that nature. Now, this is a very good time for me to make it clear that although Jews were persecuted in many Arab lands, there is no way to generalize on the treatment of Jews uh, during these centuries under Muslim control. In some cases, the Jews were persecuted, they were murdered, they uh, were forced to convert, and in other cases, they were uplifted, they were ennobled, they were held in high esteem. Uh, it just depended upon the century, upon the region, upon the rulers, on how Jews were treated. This is very important to, un to understand. Especially when you think about the fact that, uh, can you hear me in the back? Especially when you think about the fact of all the horrors that were going on against Jews perpetrated by Christians in Europe at approximately the same time frame. I'll give you another example. After the Inquisition, Catholic Church expels all the Jews, it is the Muslims, it is the Caliph, the, the Sultan, who brings, who takes the Jews in, and it says to the King of Spain, what a fool you are to get rid of these people. And the Sultan took the Jews in and uh, settled them across the Middle East, not to uh, toil and to, um, to schlep big stones up to make great edifices, but to thrive, to prosper, to invent, to excel, and to make taxes. <laughs> so it's really important not to generalize. But what is important to know is that whether Jews were reviled or whether Jews were revered, whether they were persecuted or whether they were put up on a pedestal, it was as dimmies with the permission of the ruling Islamic class. Now we need to move up several centuries and we need to get into Zionism.
the advent of Zionism. Anyone in the room, besides all my friends, know what the definition of Zionism is? Let's go to the students. I know Chaim knows. Do you know what the definition of Zionism is? No, mythical Judaism is, is Kabbalah, which means reception, which is why the place in the hotel that you check in is the same as the uh, religious theory. Uh, anybody else know what the right of Jews to establish a homeland? That's part of it, the right of Jews to establish a homeland. Who else knows something about Zionism, one of the students? Anybody? Okay, Zionism is one thing. Jewish nationalism, that's it. Now, at the end of the 19th century, there was a, um, a move amongst many peoples to self-determine their own destiny and to shirk off the uh, shackles of ecclesiastic, monarchical, and dynastic reg uh, regimes. Sometimes these people identified themselves by a region, between the, the valley between the two mountains, and sometimes by a uh, religion, and sometimes by a language. Whatever it was that gave them an identity, they had this urge to achieve self-determination. So you have the Armenians, you have the Hung Hungarians, you have the Greeks, in many ways you have the Japanese. and. They all have one goal in mind, which is to achieve independence and self-determination. Amongst these many peoples were the Jews and the Arabs uh, approximately uh, a decade and a half later, but the Jews had that. Now, many of you have heard the falsity that the real problem with the uh, Jews in Palestine, amongst their Arab brethren, was the advent of the State of Israel. That's false. 1948. Or the presence of Zionism, or the involvement of Zionism. That's false. To the best of my knowledge, there never was a day of peace between Jews and their Muslim neighbors in Palestine going all the way back. There were, of course, times when there was more or less violence, more or less friction. But true peace between the Muslims and the Jews never obtained in Palestine. Let me give you an example. Uh, in approximately uh, 1895 to 1898, uh, um, the uh, uh, the, the, uh, the Ottoman legislature passed a law that no Jews would be allowed to buy property in, um, in uh, Palestine. Uh, Jews would come in from all over the Ottoman Empire, uh, but, um, uh, excuse me, Arabs would come in from all over the Ottoman Empire to settle, to, to do business, but when 50,000 Yemenite Jews tried to come up for religious purposes, that caused a problem. The Sultan himself wrote a letter to President Rutherford, uh, Rutherford B. Hayes, uh, offering uh, Palestine as a destination for uh, tourism. Everybody 
all, all, all of the Americans are invited to visit Palestine, except Jews. That was in the 19th century. Now, I don't want you to think that none of the Jews were welcome in Palestine. It's true. In general, they were not. But in many cases, they were. I'll give you a perfect example. Once again, to avoid your drawing generalizations and generalities. The Hashishibi family, for example, in Palestine, welcomed the Jews and welcomed them as neighbors. They were tolerant. Of course, it didn't hurt that the Jews paid an extra three, four times the value for the property. So there was important families that did live in peace with the Jews. But usually, those who wanted to be neighborly and make peace were shouted down, beat down, and put off to the side so that the voices of peace could not prevail. Now let's move into the, um, the, the uh, Balfour Declaration period. At a point in time, uh, during World War I, the Balfour Declaration was issued by the British saying that amongst those who could go back to their home, that, 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 that the British Crown would look with favor on a um, Jewish homeland uh, that would, of course, uh, the whole spirit of which was that the Arabs would also make a homeland. Uh, You've all heard of the Balfour Declaration, right? But did you know that the Germans, during the war, had a similar declaration? And did you know the French had such a declaration? And did you know that Woodrow Wilson had such a declaration? Meaning the man behind self-determination, uh, international law. And did you know that even the Turkish Pashas in the Talat Declaration reversed their long-standing policy and echoed the concept of the Balfour Declaration as an official document and said, yes, Jews are welcome to uh, settle in this land. Of course, um, it was a matter of return. There were always Jews in Palestine. Um, but many of these Jews were completely non-industrial Jews. They were there for worship. They didn't work. They got paid to to, uh, to be and to be holy and all, 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 all that stuff. The Zionist ethic brought industrial Jews, enterprising Jews, to build the Jewish home, homeland. Not only were these international declarations made, the whole concept of the Jewish homeland was then ratified by the international body, the supreme international body, the League of Nations, and inculcated into the, into the mandate for uh, Palestine that was given to the British. So this was not something that was manufactured on Downing Street. Nor was it done at a moment's notice. It took years. Now this was too much for the local Arabs. Starting about 1920, Jews start trickling into Palestine. They're not Moroccan Jews. They're not Yemenite Jews. 
They're not Iraqi Jews. They're Polish Jews. They're Russian Jews. They don't speak Arabic. And they live in square houses. They even brought electricity. Remember when Kaiser Wilhelm came to Palestine in the 19th century, he brought his own generators. His own generators to make electricity. I have pictures lighting up the, uh, uh, the Judean hills. And basically, the Arabs said, we would rather live in subjugation as colonists under Britain than live as equals next to Jews. Now this is the whole thing. Equal. That's it. Can they live as equals side by side? Okay. So the Jews are coming. They're, um, uh, they're insular. Some are mixing, but most of them are in separate communities. <clears throat> the Jews are living where the Arabs are not. And um, there's a lot of violence. Uh, Arabs uh, uh, sometimes would see a guy, uh, a Jewish guy, walk along the street, stab him, keep walking. Sometimes ten of them would beat the guy up. Sometimes they'd lynch him. Sometimes they would just uh, rob him. Little, big, small acts of violence against the Jews. Mainly without defense, defenseless Jews. Eventually the Jews did learn how to defend themselves by organizing their own groups. Now, there came a point in 1928 when the Jews said, you know, I think we're going to sit down when we pray on Yom Kippur at the Wailing Wall. And the Arab community, chiefly through its leader, Husseini, the Mufti of Jerusalem, actually he's the Grand Mufti of Jerusalem. Now does anyone know who made Husseini the Mufti of Jerusalem? <laughs> it was the British. The High Commissioner declared him to be the Mufti of Jerusalem and so that he could keep the peace while they were busy trying to get the oil out of Iraq and run a pipeline down to Haifa. And uh, just to make him a little more Mufti, they made him even Muftier, they made him the Grand Mufti. This is a designation. You have to remember something. You heard of the King of Jordan? Who made the King of Jordan the King? That was the King of England. Who made Faisal the King of, uh, um, of Iraq? The King of England. That's a different book, though. That's um, Richard Petroleum. We have to come down to Jupiter next week and hear him talk about that. So, the Jews say, look, we're in our own homeland. We're supposed to have national rights here. If we can't sit down and pray like equals, what's going on? And the Muslims say, under Sharia, you can't sit when you pray at the Wailing Wall. Now, most of you don't know why. The answer is that 
under Muslim tradition, the Wailing Wall is known as Al-Barak. Now, Al-Barak, what is Al-Barak? Well, there were very, very few Muslims in Palestine in the early centuries of Islam. In fact, the word Jerusalem never appears in the Quran. I recently heard an Al Jazeera Arabic interview. It's always interesting to hear the Al Jazeera Arabic interview instead of the English interview. And um, they asked this uh, professor from Bar-Elan, Bar uh, Jerusalem is mentioned in the Quran. He says, not even once. And of course, you know, it's mentioned 360 or 370 times in the, uh, 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 in the Old and, and the New Testament. So when Muhammad died, they said that he went to the seventh heaven aboard a white-winged horse called Al-Barak, who flew to the furthest mosque, Al-Aqsa, the furthest. And he flew to Al-Aqsa Mosque and tethered his winged horse before ascending to heaven. And because Muhammad's winged horse was tethered, at this wall, it became sacred for Muslims and verboten to Jews. Okay. So, um, the Jews sit down during Yom Kippur, and the Arabs have a small riot. They beat people up. They burn some books. And they warned the Jews, don't do that again. And the poor British don't know what to do because they have two impossible duties. They have to assure the religious freedom of the Jews in Palestine, their, national, their new national homeland, and they must assure the religious status quo of the Ottomans prior to the Jews getting there. And that included all the Sharia, and I've seen the actual arguments and the judgments about this. Okay. Come 1929, it's hot, and the Jews say, once again, we're going to sit down at the wall. And Husseini and the others warn, don't do it. And the British have established a policy these little old ladies are trying to sit and the British constables that pull the chairs out so that, God forbid, these little old ladies in the heat of summer or the heat of the day can't sit, uh, sit down. Jews sit down and Husseini, who was on the British tax rolls, who was paid by the British, whose entire apparatus of autonomy in Palestine was paid for by the British taxpayers, Husseini tells the, tells the British constables, look, there's a riot in the old city because the Jews are sitting down to break the Sharia. They're beating up the Jews. They're burning the little settles from the uh, Kotel. And so all the uh, constables go down to the old city and they try to take care of this riot. 
while the constables are at the old city taking care of the riot, the main column of marauders goes to Hebron and decides to stage a terrible massacre. Defenseless Bible study um, students, what is sometimes called yeshiva buchers, these are just orthodox people, they have no um, uh, weapons, they were just there, were set upon, they were, um, uh, some of them had their arms sliced off, some of them were um, uh, uh, beaten up badly, many were murdered. And they weren't just killed, they were killed according to their identity. Now what does that mean? That means that the baker was baked in his own oven. The traveler was crucified on a door. The scholar had his head cut open and they played with his uh, cranium, with his brain like a football. Babies were cut in half and it would have been much worse had not righteous Muslim neighbors put a stop to some of it, put interposing themselves between the killers and the um, uh, between the killers and the innocents. Eventually, the Brits. What year is this? Nineteen twenty-nine. No state of Israel. 1929. The Brits bring out the machine gun, the aerial machine gun units. They machine gun the marauders. They cut them down. They bring down a tank column, armored column from I believe it was Iraq or Jordan. I forget which time would know. And they restore peace. And the headlines are all saying just this. How much time do I have left? I've got a few more decades. Okay. I'll have to make it fast now. Eventually, it becomes clear, because I have to abridge myself, that these two communities cannot live together. Comes 1933, who comes to power? Adolf Hitler, Arabs say, that's our guy. He believes what we believe. He wants to get rid of the Jews. He wants to boycott the Jews, which we have a boycott. And that boycott is the actual progenitor of the current BDS. The current boycott, divestment, and sanction movement originates with the Nazis and the Mufti of Jerusalem. That was the beginning of it. And now it, uh, it uh, goes on to campuses as though it is something new that happened yesterday. Hitler wants to uh, make them more stars. All this makes sense to us. So
So we're all going to join the Nazi party. So they all head themselves down in, in Beirut and in Damascus and in Jaffa and in Tel Aviv and in Egypt and in, even in India. And they say, we want to, to German consulates and embassies say, we want to join the Nazi party. The foreign office says, you can't join the Nazi party. You're not our, our, our youth. And worse than that, you're Sunlights. Ironically, <clears throat> the Germans, through an agreement called the Transfer Agreement, which I wrote another book about, made an arrangement by which the Jews could escape from Germany and go into Palestine trading merchandise for money so they could leave with a pittance of their money. So the Germans were actually putting the Jews into Palestine and the Arabs thought that the Germans were actually the, the savior to their problem. Come 1936, 1937 period, the Peel Commission and the, finally the Peel Report says, okay, these two people can't live together, even during the reign of Hitler when there are refugees everywhere on this little piece of property. So I think we're going to make two states for two people. You ever heard of the two-state solution? That's it. And the Arabs say, never will we accept independence and statehood if it means living next to Jews who have equal, uh, equality. In fact, I'm going to read you something, even if Charles tries to stop me because we're out of time. All right, good. Don't do it. Now, I'm going to read you something here. Ready for this? Listen to this. Our hatred for the Jews dates from God's condemnation of them for their persecution and rejection of Jesus Christ and their subsequent rejection later of his chosen prophet, Muhammad. <coughs> Verily, the word of God teaches us, and we implicitly believe this, for a Muslim to kill a Jew ensures him an immediate entry into heaven and into the august presence of God Almighty. What more, then, can a Muslim want in this hard world? Now, who wrote those little words? Was that a shopkeeper in the old city talking to his buddy? That was the king of Saudi Arabia in official 90-minute protest to the foreign office. That document is actually from the British archives. More recently, Mohammed Morsi repeated that. Morsi repeated, repeated that. Now, why do I bring up some of these things like the Medina extermination? And why do I bring up these remarks? Is it because I'm looking for something negative? I assure you, you will find very negative incidents in every religion, every religion, and in every holy book. But the Medina extermination was considered iconic in the Muslim tradition. In the same way that the Sermon on the Mount became iconic to the Christians, in the same way that the parting of the Red Sea became iconic to the Jews, this was a story they told over and over again to themselves, to, their, to the foreigners they intersected with, to the British, and they even told it to Adolf Hitler directly 
eyeball to eyeball in his own office, and they never stopped saying it. We know how to deal with the Jews much better than you. You kill them. No hiding of anything. No code words. All open radio broadcasts. All open um, uh, uh, posters where they would say in, uh, in heaven, Allah is your master. But on earth, your master is Adolf Hitler. Okay. So 1937, the Mufti is involved in the assassination of one of the high officials, the British officials in the Galilee. The Brits have had enough of this guy. They move to arrest him. He is, uh, he flees in the night dressed as a woman. You always flee dressed as women. And he went up to Iraq and the Mufti of Jerusalem became uh, part of a cabal called the Golden Square of uh, four upstart uh, soldiers in Baghdad who were um, Arab Nazis. I mean, these are people who had ensured that uh, the Protocols of the Elders of Zion was translated into Arabic. These are people, these are leaders who ensured that Mein Kampf was translated into Arabic and had interceded with the German Foreign Office to ensure that all the references of Hitler to anti-Semites were changed to anti-Jewish. In fact, I want it clear, when I say they were, anti they were Arab Nazis, I mean some of the Hitler Youth type organizations in Iraq actually went to Nuremberg and marched in the torchlight parades. In fact, even now, even now, if you go to the Syrian National Socialist Party on the internet, <coughs> you'll see that their logo is still a swastika in motion, even now. Okay. So, part of the arrangement is that Hitler needs the oil. The Arabs want the Jews out of Palestine. The Arabs want the British out of Palestine. And they decide that as part of Hitler's push across uh, uh, Europe into Russia, they are going to um, exterminate all the Jews of Iraq. The day, the day before, they uh, put the red Hamsa, the red palm print, on all the homes. And they give a radio broadcast to all, the, to all the Jews, stay in your home, pack a bat for three days. And it was just understood that like in many other communities, the Jews would be sent into the, um, in, uh, into the desert to be slaughtered industrially. Well, just before that happened, uh, Kaduri, the chief rabbi, went to the acting mayor of Baghdad threw his turban down on the floor and said, don't do this. And this, another righteous Muslim, um, interceded, expelled the, um, uh, the Golden Square, expelled the Mufti. They all ran into Iran. 
And at that point, on June 1st, when the, uh, the um, uh, royal family and their appointees were coming back uh, into Baghdad, and the Brits were attempting to hold the oil fields that they needed, there was an absolute breakdown of law and order. The military, the police, civilians, common criminals, Bedouins, they all got together and went on a two-day killing spree against the Jews in the Jewish, neighbor, uh, Jewish neighborhoods. Babies were killed in front of their parents. Parents were raped in front of their, their, their uh, mothers were raped in front of their husbands. Daughters were raped in front of their fathers. Babies were cut in half and thrown into the Tigris. And everywhere, battering down the door, battering down the door, and the Jews running up to the roof, going from rooftop to rooftop. And when they ran out of rooftops, they threw their kid down to a, a guy waiting on the bottom with a blanket to catch the kid. That's how come anyone lived from this. Hundreds of Jews were killed, more than the record will, will, will ever really show. We just really don't know. Many were, many homes were burned. Eventually, the British, who were always monitoring this from eight miles outside town, came in and restored order. <clears throat> the Mufti went to Iran, tried to set up a Nazi state in Iran. At some point, uh, the Allies gave the uh, uh, Shah of Iran a deadline to expel all, all those Nazis. That did not occur. And they invaded kicked out the little Shah, brought in the other Shah, who is the Shah of Iran that you know. And now the Mufti went to Berlin and had this famous picture and newsreels and articles in which it was decided that the Arabs would become part of the Nazi establishment, the Wehrmacht, the military machine. They formed three divisions of the Waffen-SS, the Skanderbeg, the Kama, and the Hanshar. The division has about 10,000 people. Not all of these divisions have 10,000. And the deal was, once the Russians, excuse me, once the Germans could invade Russia successfully and cross the Caucasus with the Arab oil that was at that time under the control of the British, then the Jews would be finally exterminated in Palestine. Now, I don't have time to go into the fact uh, that as part of these military operations with the Wehrmacht, there was that the Arab volunteers, not one guy, not ten guys, not a thousand guys, but tens of thousands of Arab volunteers fought from Paris to Palestine, especially in Yugoslavia. There were paratroopers, there were saboteurs, there were bridge builders, there were uh, artillery guys. Everything that could be done, they did. They, and they were the backbone of the most heinous group of killers in the Holocaust. The Yustashi, the guys who wore the eyeballs. Okay. 
I don't have time to go into all of that, but it's a brutal story that will curdle your blood. It's in this book. Okay. So, one more minute. Okay, look. Uh, all right, I'm going to take five more minutes. I don't care. I didn't come up here to tell you three quarters of the, of the story. So, the Germans eventually lost the war. But 2,000 of the SS, Gestapo, concentration camp guards, and security officials escaped into the Middle East to take up positions in Egypt, in Syria, and other places, and to continue the war that Hitler started. And in fact, they expelled, in the Eichmann style, of complete confiscation of assets, approximately 800,000 Jews from Egypt, from Morocco, from Iraq, uh, from other Arab countries, into Israel, attempting to create a demographic bomb. Israel attempted to take all these people in, working with a secret uh, aircraft uh, airline company called Air Alaska. That's how they got their start. And then comes the 20th century, the end of the 20th century, which was built by the days after the war of World War II. Now I'm going to give you an idea here. Hitler was the most popular name after Muhammad in the Arab world. The field marshal of the Egyptians right now is a guy called Muhammad Tantali. He was until he lost his job. Muhammad Tantali's got two brothers, Mussolini and Hitler. And you can Google Hitler Tantali, and you'll see he's, it is, is an administrative official there. So they have this, uh, they have this um, love letter contest in Egypt uh, to write love letters to, Hit, to Hitler. And one uh, soldier, uh, officer of the Egyptian army, writes a letter uh, to this uh, magazine called Amusawar. He says, my dear Hitler, I congratulate you from the bottom of my heart. He goes on and on, and he says, you are a great man, and one day you will rise again. Now, who was the man who wrote that letter? Anwar Sadat. Right. Now, what you're saying now, and I have to tell you, I believe that Sadat wore swastikas on his tie when he went to Jerusalem. You can check the pictures. Now, what does all this mean? I'm wrapping up. Here comes this guy. He's wearing black. His name is Black. And he's got a black story. And there's no hope. Where's the hope for this? Well, there is hope. There is now, from the nation whose leader wrote the love letter to Hitler, a peace treaty. It's still in force, at least for a few more weeks. There is peace with Jordan. There is a semblance of coexistence. And that's what this is about. 
coexistence. No chance for peace in the Middle East in our lifetimes. Did you hear what I just said? No chance for peace in the Middle East in our lifetimes. However, there is a chance for peaceful coexistence now, today. And after a generation of peaceful coexistence could come a second generation of true peace and then a third generation after that, if it is successful and uninterrupted, of true fellowship amongst these cousins who argue about who is the favorite son of God. So, this is our hope. Now, who in the room knows the name of the Israeli national anthem? Anybody? You? What? And what does Hatikva mean? That's it, ladies and gentlemen. Thank you. I want you to hold your questions, even if it means writing it down, because right now, everything I told you about that terrible disaster is going to come to life in the words and in the film strip of Chaim Shepard from Miami. Thank you very much for coming to time. Good evening. One should never appear on the stage with a talented kid, with a talented dog, or appear after Edwin Black. Uh, I'd like to join Edwin in thanking Harvard University for hosting uh, this event. Charles from ISGAP for organizing this and other events, and Edwin for sharing uh, the stage tonight or the podium tonight uh, with me. I know that Charles is very nervous about keeping the time. So, Charles, all I can do is quote to you what Henry VIII said to his third wife. Don't worry, dear, it's going to be brief. <laughs> I, I want to make three points. Point number one goes back to a comment, an oblique comment that Edwin made in the beginning of his presentation about the Holocaust Museum. I am a tenured professor, so I can't afford to be very blunt. When the Holocaust Museum in Washington was being planned by a gentleman called Scheike Weinberg, who had planned before that and, and ran before that the famous Diaspora Museum in Tel Aviv, which is now called the Museum of the Jewish People, and created an innovative museum to the extent that he was then invited to Washington to plan the Holocaust Museum in Washington. He invited me one day to see a very long maquette that took up a whole room of what the museum was going to look like. And he went over each room with me and said, this is what we're going to put here and this is what we're going to put there. Do you have any suggestions? And I said, yeah, actually, it's very impressive, and I think it will be a terrific museum, but I would like to make two comments. Comment number one, there is more and more and more denial of the story of the Holocaust. You need to open the museum with an absolutely indisputable 
testimony about the Holocaust. His researchers then went out and found the quote, which you see if you go to the museum in Washington, the first thing you see when you enter is a quote and the picture of Dwight Eisenhower, who after the conquest of Europe and the demise of the Nazis, went to see the concentration camps and made a statement about the horrors that he, White Eisenhower saw with his own eyes. That hits you as you enter the museum. I didn't know about the quote, but the idea of putting something like that was much. But I had a second idea, and that was Scheike make sure that in that museum you tell the world the story of the Mufti's involvement with the Nazis. Because the world, because of political correctness, wants to ignore it or to forget it. Last time I went to the museum a few years ago, that story had not yet been told. For political correctness and political <coughs> reasons. The only place where this story has been told in full is the book The Farhood by Edwin Black. And I really think that it's time that that museum would put up a traveling exhibition like the very excellent traveling exhibition that they've put up so far to go all over the country and to tell this story that everyone is trying to sweep under the carpet. So I'm very grateful to Edwin for writing this book and for Charles for hosting an event about this book. People should know the story. That's my first comment. My second comment is about the documentary which you are going to see. It's a 30 minute long documentary which was done in Israel by a good friend of mine. His name is Chalutzi. It's Chak Chalutzi. He wrote the story. He interviewed the people. And this is essentially a story by survivors of this Fahud telling from their own experience, about their own experiences as they were children. By now, they are elderly. Some of them have already passed away. And it's really, really an important uh, documentary. It was broadcast in Israel by Israeli television. It's an important documentary because the Fahud was a seminal event in the history of the Babylonian Jewish community, a community, as Edwin mentioned correctly, that lived there for 2,600 years. Until the Fahud, they all believed that they were good Iraqis, that they were part of Iraq, that they were part of the country, part of the culture, part of the economy, part of the business, that nothing could ever touch them. The German Jews thought the same way, and I think there are Jewish communities elsewhere today who think the same way, that nothing can ever touch them. The only place where nothing can ever touch you because you're Jewish today happens to be Israel. So you'll see for yourself and then you'll judge. It's a really an important documentary, and I'm very pleased for the opportunity to show it tonight. My third and last comment, I told you it would be brief, 
There is an epilogue to this story. The Mufti Khajamin al-Husseini, who was more Nazi than the Nazis, because no one forced him to go to Hitler and to collaborate and to broadcast from Berlin and to mobilize Croatians and other Muslims into divisions that would fight side by side with the Nazis. The Mufti is gone. He ended up as an exile in Lebanon. But my epilogue is this. In the beginning of January of this year, there was a very, very major event, a festivity of the Fatah movement in Ramallah. And chairman of the Fatah and the PLO, Abu Mazen, who, for your information, is Dr. Abu Mazen, because he did his doctorate in Moscow on the denial of the Holocaust, not refuting the Holocaust, not refuting the denial, but about how the Holocaust is a hoax. Dr. Abu Mazen made a speech in Ramallah, five minutes from Jerusalem, from, from Jewish Jerusalem, on a very festive occasion. And what was the centerpiece of his speech? How great the Mufti Khajamir Husseini was, how he should be emulated, how he should be a role model for the youth of Palestine. Enough said. The rest is in the documentary. Thank you. Thank you. We're very strict with the time you're going to be doing later on. The question is, as I watch this vis-a-vis -vis the, the Middle East politics of the contemporary context of today, and the possibility of coexistence and peace, the history is so important to understand, to understand the present-day context. You both mentioned the U.S. Holocaust Museum. Do you think that in the United States that there is an attempt, an overt attempt for political reasons, to oversee, to, to go easy on the history of, the, of this, this history that you presented tonight? Because the Holocaust Museum is, after all, run by the State Department. The State Department has all sorts of interests to represent the government. Is this a factor, you think, in the American representation of the Holocaust? Yes. Tenure professor. <laughs> You don't get rich, but you have free speech. Um, I don't want to talk about the American government, but I'll address your question with regard to American universities. Unfortunately, under the guise of political correctness, Crimes against truth are committed every day in American universities. It's a very, very unfortunate situation, and it's motivated, I would say, by two drivers. One driver is ideological, i.e., whatever doesn't fit the story which I want to broadcast never happened. Don't confuse me with facts. The other driver is money. 
quite a few institutions of higher learning in this country are starved for money. They were starved for money even before the recent economic crisis. They are even more starved for money today. And there is a lot of money to be had from various countries and shikdoms in the Middle East. And therefore, they prefer not to rattle things, not to walk the boat. And the best example, the best illustration of what I'm talking about is what happened at the very distinguished university named Yale to his institute. Enough said. <clears throat> okay. So, before I answer, are we still being filmed? Yes. Oh, well. <laughs> Should I turn uh, it on? <laughs> the Holocaust Museum is not uh, run by the State Department. It's an, inde an independent chartered entity. And I know this because I've done many Freedom of Information requests, and they've indicated that they have a status similar to the Smithsonian. It's very unusual that they answer to no one and are not covered by freedom of information and not covered by the same law. Maybe it's not the case, but this is what they've told me. Second of all, as to what the Holocaust... What was the question? How much denial are they doing? Um, basically, it used to be that they denied everything. Now, I've, I have told them that I would nice lately. So, um, but remember, um, Chaim here is a distinguished professor, and I'm a two-fisted investigative reporter. <laughs> so we take different approaches. And um, they originally refused all information about this. You couldn't find anything about it. They said the Mufti of Jerusalem was not important. Uh, there were complaints filed. In recent years, uh, a large number of people have made a, uh, a, a dent, a dent in the um, Holocaust Museum persona and its attitude about reflecting disinformation. Now on the uh, website they have an article involving uh, uh, the, the Farhood, which they didn't have. They have a little something on the Mufti of Jerusalem, but remember, you won't find anything on Ford in the uh, museum, won't find anything on um, General Motors, won't find anything on the Carnegie Institution, in the eugenics section, the Rockefeller Museum. After I did my book, they took out the IBM machine, they scrubbed it from their website. Sorry, I just want to give a little bit of the truth, not the whole thing. And But we're making progress, inch by inch. The problem is, we shouldn't have to fight for the truth. And here I will say something about Jewish leadership, and I will say something about the Jewish Communal Society, because trust me, I know them all, I work with them all, the littlest guys and the big guys. The means to attack the Jewish community, the means to attack Israel, the means to destroy our culture, are being done primarily by theft of history. They steal our history, 
and we do not make any attempt to get it back. This discussion is being held in a little room under the guise of a guy who is uh, working 24-7 and two people who came in from out of town on their own dime. You are not going to see on June 1st a Holocaust observance for, uh, for the Farhood because the Farhood still violates the mission statement of the Holocaust Museum, which is the Holocaust was the attempt to destroy European Jewry. There was Greek Jewry, there was Syrian Jewry, there was Palestinian Jewry, of course, uh, all, all of these different th things. So uh, the, the short answer is that, um, what question? <laughs> the impact on me, nothing. They can't stop me. They can't stop the book. They can't stop Chaim from flying in from Miami. They can't stop me from taking a train up from Washington. I talk all over the country. I went to San Jose State. I've been to many universities. I've been on book TV. T -t TV. Everybody knows what we're talking about, except when I come, I deliver it in greater specificity. The impact is, the bottom line is, the history of our people, and therefore the future of our people, is not in the hands of great institutions who are made of money. It is the hands of individuals like yourself. Let me get to a fundamental question, which you are sort of get, uh, alluding to. Uh, there's a great deal of demonization of Israel and, Jude and Jews on college campuses across this country and across the world. In the name of freedom of speech, we have allowed incitement to genocide. So why can't we stop calling it freedom of speech, academic freedom, and deal with what it really is, incitement to genocide, which is illegal under international law and under the law of most democratic nations. Why haven't the Jewish leadership dealt with the problem as it should be? Uh, all right, I'll answer the question first, because I always carry a copy of the Genocide Treaty with me, just in case somebody like you wants to ask such a question. Here's the Genocide Treaty. And in the Genocide Treaty, it says clearly this is the genocide treaty that you have. This is genocide under international law. Now, what is art, um, what is Article Two say? Our members, uh, excuse me, Article Three. What acts are genocide? Read it. And read number three. The following uh, shall be punishable. Genocide, conspiracy to commit genocide, direct and public incitement to commit genocide. Did you say direct and public incitement to commit genocide? Yes. And what's the next one there? Attempt to commit the, uh, genocide, complicity in genocide. Now why was Goebbels, a newspaper, uh, uh, a propagandist, a war criminal, why was Stryker, a newspaper editor, a war criminal, because it was deemed by the international community that incitement to commit genocide, incitement, 
is part of genocide since from the from the days of Hammurabi it has been understood it is not just he who commits the crime but he who instigates the crime shares equal responsibility so the answer is I'm the free speech guy I'm the journalist I'm the guy that wants the freedom of speech not all speech is free you can't say, I'm going to kill you, and that is not free. You can't say, fire in a theater, and you can't use the words Olympics for your, for your own schoolyard a competition. There are many regulations on speech. And so, basically, we need to, as citizens who are the owners of our future and the owners of our past, we don't give a bailment or an assignment of trust of who owns our future. Got it? And as that, we need to assert ourselves, but you need the clarity. You need somebody to come up and pull out of this touch key the actual genocide treaty, so instead of just hoping, you have to prove in the evidence that this is what it is. Someone needs to address this because every single day, this government is funding people who incite to commit genocide against the Jews. Who in the Jewish community is going to address that? Sorry. I have to, uh, um, I must say that, that uh, I find the, uh, I find uh, your approach very troubling. Um, and I must say that, uh, I, you know, the, this is a, a university, so we make very, um, uh, we're very careful with words. Um, and not everything we don't like is genocide. Um, not every pogrom is a holocaust. Not every not, not every quote is a is, is a proof text. Um, and so, is you know I, I commend. And the question? I'm uh, I'm arguing against. You. Oh, okay. Um, and um, so the point the point here following that. Um, your approach um, to uh, in you sort of this broad um, um, sort of swap that you do to uh, of, of, uh, Jewish Muslim history um, with all the subclauses that you've done um, are um, is very um, how should I say uh, partial and problematic. The issues are far more complex. Uh, do you deny that what he has said Something is true? Uh, which so part of it ain't true? What yeah. isn't true? For example, the, uh, the Medina massacre that you described, yes. happens to know a little bit about it. It's an accurate description. But I'm not going to go into, you know, we're not, we're not, we shouldn't go footnote to footnote. It should not at the moment because the, the But footnote. is it true or is it not true? It's, it's taken not. from the contemporary text. It, we, uh, no, it's not true the way you're describing it. No, because the, the, the struggle with the Medina jewelry is far more complicated. It was not a genocidal massacre. Well, so the word genocide didn't exist until the 1940s. Now, now you've been picky about the word. No, I'm uh, but, no, but no, because you're the one who suggested it was genocide. You're the one who suggested that the, the, the pogrom, uh, not every pogrom is a Holocaust. Not every time somebody says something offensive is calling for genocide. But no one said that. Yeah. Excuse me? You, this, 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 this tirade about what's happening in American universities, for all we know, and about the Holocaust Museum, would say the following thing. 
The Holocaust Museum does acknowledge Tunisian uh, Holocaust. It does not acknowledge the Iraqi pogrom, because the Iraqi pogrom, as and I, you know, I commend you for documenting it. The Iraqi pogrom is not part of the Holocaust, because the Iraqi, not every pogrom is a Holocaust, and there's a, there's a fundamental distinctions, and academics make distinctions. What is the distinction? What is the distinction? Mm -hmm. Is there a genocide? Because pogroms happen in, you know, right in Nazi pogrom. You are speaking of now. To suggest that the Nazis are, you know, first of all, you know, one one thing I would suggest to you is that the word Semite never applied to Arabs. The word anti-Semite never existed. Actually, it's an anti-Semite. It's a non-century word. But forget about that. It's just linguistically incorrect. But the problem here they is the issue. They say they're Semites. Right? The Arabs say they're Semites. The, the word anti-Semite was created in the 19th century. You know the Spanish Inquisition was against Muslims. Let him talk, Professor Fish, and then I'll answer. I'm happy he's making his reply. I think that you know. This, I, I don't want. I, my my point is the following: is that the, the, the you know, there you have a very important subject, the subject of the Farhud, which is a, a, a you are correct in uh, in raising it and in pointing it out, and the testimony in the movie is wonderful. But by elevating everything to, a, to an Auschwitz caliber kind of thing, the fact is that 180 people or so were killed in the Farhud, and it's awful. But this, the Holocaust is a different magnitude of things. And riots against Jews happen and continue to happen. Riots, by the way, not only against Jews. Riots happen, it's part of the, you know, it's part of the history. The Holocaust is different. And it's incorrect, it's because of their Sephardic, because the Tunisian Holocaust is part of the Holocaust Museum. Okay, so let me respond. Uh, first of all, thank you for your remarks. I, I, I didn't, uh, uh, forgive me, you, you, your area is um, history. Which part, Jewish history? Okay, so first of all, nobody said that every pogrom is a Holocaust. Nobody said that. This is an invention, Klein didn't say it, and I didn't say it. Nobody said that uh, every time you, and it's true, not every pogrom is a holocaust. The only time pogrom, and no one would ever say that a pogrom is a holocaust. No one ever said that every pogrom is escalated to a genocide. However, when the purpose of the riot when, uh, is to destroy and, or, or be part of the move to destroy an entire people, okay? We're not talking Kijnev in 1903, in 1903. We're not talking about pogroms, which is the word that he used. We are talking about part and parcel of the Nazi effort in the, in the Third Reich, which utilized not only its own people, but the Croatians and French and uh, Dutch and other um, uh, cronies in other places to help uh, um, implement the concept, uh, the uh, goal of genocide, which was to destroy the entire people. Does anybody in the room know where the word genocide was invented? Anybody in the room? Where? No. No. Now, anybody in the room? Does anybody in the room know where the word genocide was invented? You know because you're helping me on the book. <laughs> <laughs> was it 
Duke University. Duke University by a Polish Jew who took a Latin word and a Greek word and went all the way back to the pogroms and the destruction, the, the coordinated destruction of the Armenians by the Turks to come up with a brand new concept. Uh, Lebkin was the man's name uh, to define a deliberate attempt not to commit ethnic violence. That's a pogrom. But a deliberate attempt to wipe out an entire people. And genocide is accomplished not only by the actual killing of people, that is only one form. Genocide under the treaty and under the concept of genocide, which I've studied, is also caused by causing serious bodily or mental harm to the members of the group, sub uh, article 2 sub b, severely inflicting on the group conditions of life calculated to bring about its physical destruction, meaning ghettoization, star uh, forced starvation, etc. D, another area I'm expert in that I've written a book on, imposing measures intended to prevent births within the group. Sterilization, the goal of the Carnegie Institution and the Rockefeller Foundation, mass sterilization of which there were 60,000 Americans sterilized in the United States as part of this act uh, activity, and that continues, that continued for decades, and forcibly transferring children of the group to another group. That is genocide, and anyone can fight it. It's not just a knife. So, it isn't that I say, it isn't that I say that every bad remark, every piece of hate is genocide. Never said it, don't believe it, don't believe it if you hear someone say it. But I will say this, I've studied genocide against, before the word was even used, against the Armenians, against the Indians, against the gypsies, against the hillbillies in Appalachia, uh, and many other groups. And I can tell you, all genocides that I have studied, including the Nazi genocide, had their roots and fermentations in academia. That is what I want you to know. Not everything is sacrosanct in academia. There have to be some borders. Freedom of academia is not also freedom to advocate group killing, group killing, group killing, killing of the group, not killing of the, not normal hate, in group, out group. I'm over here, I don't like those guys over there because they're Jewish, etc., etc. Remember, prior to Henry Ford, there was no international Jewish conspiracy. All Jews were killed merely because of in, in group, out group. Herzl understood this when he said, our presence makes them kill us. If we just leave, they're not going to kill us. And people, and people like the King of Spain said, just get the hell out, and that's fine. They didn't have the necessity, the necessity to kill. They just wanted to get rid of these people. So I hope I've answered the question that no one ever said a pogrom was genocide, especially since uh, uh, all the Tsarist pogroms. No one ever said that hate speech is, is genocide, and no one said that every pogrom is a holocaust. What I don't want to have done is anyone to think that they can take my words and twist them into a pretzel, things I never said and would not say. I'm very careful about what I say. My stuff is vetted very carefully, and I hope I've explained 
why I have come across not only with the facts, but the nuance to show that some people tried to get along, but other forces could not. Remember, we talk about the Turks in World War II, the French in World War II, the Germans in World War II, the Italians in World War II, the Croatians in World, in World War II. It's okay to also talk about some other ethnic groups. Thank you very, very much. Thank you. Islamic history. My teacher was Professor Bernard Lewis. I don't think there is anyone alive or anyone that was alive in the past 200 years that is more knowledgeable and more meticulous about Islamic and Middle Eastern history than Bernard Lewis is. And he, quote unquote, ordained me as a doctor. So maybe I know what I'm talking about. And I want to make two very brief comments. Comment number one. The massacre of the Banu Kuraiza and of the Banu Kailuka in Medina by the Prophet Muhammad, the breakdown of the Treaty of Hudaybiyah by the Prophet Muhammad are still iconic notions in the minds and in the speeches and in the written statements of all people in the Islamic world who believe that Jews should be dhimmis. And I'm willing to state my professional academic reputation and what I just said. And you can stick my Excuse professional me. reputation. It's not for nothing, it's not for nothing that the 1973 war by Egypt against Israel was named Operation Badr. And if you read the order of battle that was signed by Sadat in 1973, the same Sadat who, by the way, then made peace with Israel. But if you read the order of battle that was signed by Sadat in 1973 in Arabic, it is replete with quotes from the life of Muhammad to justify the 1973 jihad against Israel. The only thing is, it's available only in Arabic, and no one ever bothered to translate it so the rest of the world will know it. There's also a Hebrew translation. Second point, and very briefly. I didn't hear Edwin, and I certainly didn't say that the Fahud is the Holocaust or Auschwitz, or anything like that. But let it be absolutely clear, the Farhud was part and parcel of the Nazi deployment of their forces during the Second World War. It was instigated by Hajamir al-Husseini the Mufti. You don't have to believe me, after the Farhud was over, the Iraqi government appointed a commission of inquiry that studied the issue and published, I think, a 70 or 80 page report. It's available in Arabic. There is an official English translation, which I provided to Edwin when I heard that he was working on the Farhud. And they enumerate chapter and verse the involvement of Fritz Grobach the Nazi consul in Baghdad, 
the involvement of the newspaper that he bought, the Arabic newspaper that he bought and that serialized Mein Kampf, the involvement of the Futua, which was a fascist youth movement modeled on the Hitler Jugend, and all other involvement of the Nazi sympathizers, chief of which was Rashid Ali al-Kailani, who was the head of the four officers that was known as the Golden Square, that tried to topple the pro, what they considered the pro-British government and create a pro-Nazi government in Iraq. And anyone who claimed that the Farhud was not part and parcel of the Nazi attempt to take over the Middle East, which, by the way, was a very sophisticated attempt, would fail an exam in Middle Eastern history if I administer it. Hold on, hold on, please, one second, just to reiterate what you're saying. I just met a 94-year-old Persian, Iranian person of Kurdish descent, and he remembers, he's 94 years old, he remembers Husseini going from Jerusalem to Berlin, he went through Kurdistan, and he remembers Husseini coming to uh, get people to try to kill Jews. That was with a big speech he was down in the same 94-year-old man from California remembers the speech. So, uh, it's only an honor. Professor has, has said a lot, and everyone has said it all too. But one thing that I think everyone would agree with me on is that a large part of the issue that we have in the United States, amongst American Jewry as well, is, uh, is, is a, a, a lack of desire to, to be vigilant anymore, to want to be loved. In every society where Jews decided they wanted to assimilate and be loved by the society, they, 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 they failed to see what was coming right before their eyes every step of the way. And when a professor um, wants to go ahead and hint toward whether the genocide or just a program or just the hate Jews. They're, they're, they're setting themselves up for a long-term failure when, when that steamroll starts coming down, uh, coming down the pike. I've studied this a while, too. I've known Edmund for a long time. I helped him on the book. And, and uh, the things that I write about as well are just, just like this. The Jewish community in America wants to be loved. And that's where the liberalism comes from, and that's where they let their guard down. And I, I, and I think that's, that, that, that's the issue. Okay, so that's where we ended, but just as a point, as a scholar, I think that the point that President are made and the discussion back and forth is very important because these distinctions and these debates and these arguments are very much what scholarship is all about and they're very important. And I think to hear the, the discourse, the discussion, um, and the depth of knowledge that these two gentlemen have in the subject matter is very important and should not be underestimated. On that note, I just want to say one thing. So before I thank the speakers, in two weeks, on February the 14th, we're having Neil Kressel, who's going to speak on something that's very much connected to this subject. He recently wrote a book. He was a fellow with us at Yale at, at ISA. And he wrote a book about um, radical Islam and in the Islamic text of Jews being descendants of apes and pigs. He just published the book. Uh, his title of his lecture will be Muslim Antisemitism, a Litmus Test for the West. And he's um, a very good scholar. He'll be here in two weeks. So on behalf of ISGAP, I'd like to thank Edwin and Chaim very much for coming here.